Well, I want to invite all of you guys to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 1 yet again this morning. I've been making that invitation a lot lately, haven't I? We're going to be right back on page number one. Actually, we may have reached page number two in those Bibles that we've provided for you that it should be in arm's reach. It should be on the back of the pew in front of you, back of the chair in front of you. We'd love for you to take that with you. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, consider that one yours. We'd love it if, if you'd take it. Um, this past fall, um, the Pew Research Center released some results from a huge study on marriage patterns in the United States. They found in this study that the number of American adults who are not married has risen sharply since 1990, up to nearly 40% of the U.S. population, adult population, in 2019. Uh, Based on these results and the, the rate of increase in that number, it's now expected that before too much longer, the majority of adults in America will be unmarried. And nobody knows what effect that will have on our society because no one's been here before. And some of that sharp rise in the number of unmarried people certainly comes from a high divorce rate during those years. But the, what the study found was that primarily the rise in the, in the number of unmarried American adults comes, has come from people choosing not to marry at all. Now, you can imagine for people who kind of make their living in the world interpreting results like this, pundits out there who are trying to pontificate on what it means to, to, to be an American in our time and place have been circling these results like sharks with blood in the water. And I'll leave it to you to Google if, to your heart's content if you want to know what they think these results mean for who we are and for where we're headed as a society. I won't pretend to know the answer to, what these, to the question of what these results mean, but I won't be convinced that these survey results have nothing to do with another big trend in American marriages that sociologists have been talking a lot about. This sharp decline in in the rate at which American adults are being married, it follows just behind a rise in a view of marriage that one of these sociologists has called the self expressive marriage. The self expressive marriage. Here's what that means. In a culture where the needs of the self matter first and more than any other needs. Here's a quote from the sociologist. Americans now look to marriage increasingly for self-discovery, for self-esteem, and for personal growth. In other words, Americans tend to come to marriage for what they get out of it. For what they stand to gain. And figuring out what they stand to gain from marriage tends to determine whether they seek to marry in the first place and whether they stay married after the fact. That's what the sociologist argues. In this view of marriage, as one psychologist put it, spouses, quote, just my companion in our separate but intertwined pathways of growth. That's just an academic psychologist's way of saying You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. In our marriage, we're companions on separate but intertwined pathways of growth. Why are we having a a sermon on marriage and sexuality in a series on what it means to be human? That's a fair question as we approach today's sermon, which is going to be all about marriage and sexuality. Why a sermon on that topic in in a series that's as big as the meaning of human existence according to the God who made us. 
The answer to why a sermon on this topic is, is first of all, that we're talking about Genesis 1 to 3. This is the foundational text in all the Bible on what it means to be human. And right at the center of this foundational text on what it means to be human, you'll find the author writing about marriage and sexuality. We're going to go where he goes. But for another thing, I'm just as convinced as I can be that confusion about what it means to be human in the first place is wreaking havoc on American marriages. And I, I think finally, the reason we're talking about marriage and sexuality in a sermon series on what it means to be human is that what we've been learning these last few weeks together about what it means to be human flows directly into what the Bible has to say about marriage and sexuality. The Bible defines this relationship as a unique and challenging and ultimately life-giving and joy-producing relationship that aims directly at the purposes for human life in the first place. I want to give you a taste of the Bible's perspective on marriage and sexuality this morning. Just a taste, because we don't have much time. And I want to give you that taste in two simple steps. I want to show you this morning from Genesis 1 and 2 that first of all, marriage is for God. And second of all, that sex is for marriage. Two simple steps to get a taste of what the Bible has to say about marriage and sexuality this morning. The first one, the one where we'll spend most of our time, is that marriage is for God. The second step is that sex is for marriage. I want to begin by reading the text that we're going to consider first this morning. I want to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word as I pick up in Genesis chapter 1. And I'm going to read from verse 26 down to verse 28 to begin our time in Genesis this morning. And then we'll pick up with chapter 2 a little bit later. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Point number one this morning, guys, where we'll spend most of our time, it's simply this. Marriage is for God. It's the most important thing to know about what the Bible has to say on this important topic. God designed marriage, and God aims marriage at God's purposes for God's world. Several weeks back, we talked about what it means that God made humans in his image. From the text that I've just read for you here in Genesis chapter 1. We talked about how to be in God's image is to be given a purpose from God for your life. And what I, what I want to show you now is not to re-preach that sermon as tempted as I am to do that. I'm, I'm going to refer you back to that sermon on, on what it means to have a purpose defined by being made in God's image. I'm going to draw from it a lot this morning. Go there for more detail. Uh, what I simply want to show you here 
is that God aims marriage at exactly the same purposes that he gives to all of our lives as his image bearers. Let me give you two examples of this theme in our text this morning. Here's example number one. Marriage is for representing God's rule. Marriage is for God. That's big point number one. I'm going to show you that in two examples. First, marriage is for representing God's rule. Uh, Perhaps you remember from that sermon on the image of God that the term image, it comes from the ancient world where kings would sometimes set up images or statues of themselves in places where they were in charge but where they couldn't physically be present. You know, if they ended up with a huge empire, you've got a capital city, you're going to be there sitting on your throne, but you want people to know out there in the provinces that that you're in charge there too. And so what you do is you set up a statue, something that represented who you were and what your reign was like, and you'd put it there to mark your territory. That imagery is behind what it means for God to have made humans in his image. He's, He's filled his world with images of his rule over all of it, over all the things that he made. And when God made us, when he made us in his image as humans, one of the unique purposes that he assigned to us was not to go out there and conquer, not to go out there and make the world our oyster, but to go out there and take care of this world that belongs to him in the way that he would do it as his image bearers. Verse 26 and verse 28 both repeat this calling on humans to go out and have dominion over everything that God made. Now, what I want you to notice this morning, the key thing to know about this text for marriage and what it means for that relationship is that the creation of male and female that comes out in verse 27 for the first time and then the command to have kids in verse 28 That comes wedged right between the two times that God gives us our purpose for representing his rule in the world. Have dominion, have dominion. And right in between, he created them male and female and says, go, be fruitful and multiply. There's a simple and profound point here that we can't afford to miss. God designed marriage He established it. And he did that to create a partnership for bringing stability and flourishing to his world. He knew that marriage could help us do what he made us to do. Now, let me take this simple, profound point and shoot even straighter with it. Let me talk directly for just a minute about kids. Because this function right here of marriage as part of how we represent God's rule in the world, as part of how we go at the purpose he's given to all of our lives. It has a whole lot to do with this command to be fruitful and multiply. I don't believe this command means that if you don't try to have kids right away after you're married or have kids at all in your marriage that you're being disobedient to God. I think that would be pushing the text further than it's meant to go. But if you're married and you're not planning to have kids, I do think it's worthwhile to do a little prying around into your heart to consider why that might be true. Maybe you're thinking that your marriage can help with the goals you have for your life, but that kids might interfere with the goals you have for your life, whether those goals are personal or professional. Maybe, maybe you feel that even, even that, that kids could interfere in the kind of marriage you want to have. 
because they do change a marriage in so many fundamental ways. The reality is, guys, you're not wrong about that. Kids do affect everything. At every level of your life, you will be changed by the responsibility of taking on actual image bearers under your care. They absorb a tremendous amount of time and attention and energy and money. But if, if that's what you're thinking as you pull back from the notion of having kids, I would encourage you to think a little bit, to maybe work your way upstream and consider how that concern about kids reflects on how you see your marriage and on how you see the point of your life in the first place. Because I think what Genesis 1 is trying to do here is push us to think about marriage not as part of our individual goals for our lives, but as part of God's goal for our lives. Within that, having kids isn't interfering with God's goal for your life. Having kids could be part of God's goal for your life. Let me say that even more clearly than that. Having children could be part of how you invest in the health of the world around you. As a human, God has made you responsible to represent his rule. That is to take what God would do based on what we know about who he is and try to do it in the world around you so that it flourishes in the way that he wants it to flourish. Having children could be one of the most direct and effective ways you can do that work. I hope it matters to you that you see our city and our country and our world flourishing. I hope that you're driven by by deep compassion for the suffering that you see around you and, and, and deep hunger for justice and deep commitment to doing what you can to make the world a better place. I hope all of that is in you and motivating you in the decisions that you make and how you spend your time and your resources. But, but I want to say, I want to take that desire that I hope is in you and channel it for just a minute. You realize you don't actually have to swing for the fences here and aim for a Nobel Peace Prize all or nothing. God has given you a much more dependable and straightforward way to make a difference in the world. You want to represent God's rule right here, right now, where God has placed you? Here's a suggestion. Find a godly person. Marry that godly person. Have kids with that godly person. Then change those kids' diapers. Fix those kids' meals. Teach those kids their ABCs, read them good books, and more than anything else, teach those kids that this world belongs to God, the God who made them and loves them and provides for them. Teach those kids that they can trust this God, that their lives belong to this God, that he is pleased when they love their neighbors in his name. You want to change the world? Be fruitful and multiply. That's Genesis 1. Marriage is ultimately for God because marriage helps us represent his rule in the world. Marriage is a partnership for bringing flourishing to the world. And a big part of that is the gift of children and the chance to invest in them. Now, and before I move on to the second way in which marriage is for God, I... I want to just stop right here. I want to come to a screeching halt right here and I want to speak for just a minute about the pain of infertility. Because of all the suffering uh, that I've witnessed in our church over the years that I've been a pastor, I don't know of another form that's been more common or more deeply felt in our church than that one. And I know that I'm talking about many of you in the room right now. This is not hypothetical. You're out there. You're sitting there and that's what you're thinking probably as I talk about the beauty and 
wonder of having children. I know part of the suffering of infertility comes from belonging to a community like ours that celebrates children the way we do. That, that sees them as such an incredible, precious gift from the Lord. And, and, and from a community like ours where kids just seem to be everywhere, <laughs> everywhere you look. I know it seems like your friends just keep getting pregnant and everybody's talking about birthing plans and everybody's talking about stroller models and you can't even go to the bathroom at church without walking past a nursing mother's room. I know it can feel like you just can't escape it and you're perpetually left out. And I'm, I'm just so sorry, friends. I'm so sorry for the pain that you're living with today. And I just want you to know that your suffering is legitimate and your suffering won't last forever. It's legitimate. One of the ways the Bible tells us to respond to sorrow is to be honest about it. To not try to explain it away as if it's no big deal. To not try to paper over it. To not try to change the subject all the time. But to just acknowledge it. And everything I've said today about how wonderful it is to pursue our purpose in life through having children contributes to the pain of not being able to have them. I know that's true. That pain is legitimate. Because the gift itself is so precious. But that pain is not going to last forever. At the same time that you're honest about it, I want to encourage you to be hopeful through it. Because whether or not the Lord gives you children biologically or through adoption in this life, one day the Lord will make all things new. One day he'll wipe away every single tear and he's counting yours. And when he promises in his word to do that good work, one of my favorite images that he uses is from Isaiah 54 where he calls to the barren one and calls on her to rejoice. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. That's a metaphor for Israel and her spiritual state. That's true. But it's also a promise. It's also a promise. Because when God makes all things new, part of what makes that day so sweet to us is is, going to be the bitterness that we tasted along the way. So let your grief this morning drive you to a clearer and clearer view of the hope that God has put in front of you. He has put that hope in front of you. And all his promises are yes in Jesus. Your pain won't last forever. Marriage is for helping us represent God's rule. That's what I've been saying so far. I want to show you now a second purpose. Underneath, marriage is for God. A second purpose that comes out, especially in Genesis chapter 2, is that marriage is for reflecting God's love. It's for representing God's rule, but it's also for reflecting God's love. This is another purpose that's built into our 
our life as image bearers. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago in that sermon on purpose. We're made to reflect God's goodness and beauty in God's world. We're supposed to be like little mirrors or little photographs. We're images of what he's like. Faint maybe, kind of fuzzy, not super clear, and definitely not as glorious, but real. Reflections of who he is. Marriage is designed to help us accomplish that purpose, to reflect something of what his love is like in this world. And we can see this purpose in a couple different places. I want to show them to you. The the first place you can see it is right here in Genesis chapter 2. And then you can see it even more clearly in in what Paul does with Genesis chapter 2 in Ephesians 5, where Paul comes back to this text and quotes it again. So I want to show you in those two steps how you can see that marriage is is for reflecting God's love in the world. Look at Genesis 2. We haven't read it yet this morning. We, we talked about this passage in more detail last week, so I'm not going to cover all the same ground. Let me recap and take you to the section I want to show you. This chapter is, is here unfolding a story that's told the way it is to make it super clear to everybody that a one-gendered humanity just isn't good enough. Women and men are both essential for the flourishing God designed for us. So rather than just telling Adam that that's true, rather than just telling us that that's true, God shows him that it's true by bringing to him all these different things that he's made and having Adam realize from experience, nope, not enough, not enough, not enough, not enough. Nope, none of these things fit. And then the Lord creates woman, creates Eve, brings Eve to Adam, and Adam says, verse 23, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now look at verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Let me read it again. This is is so key. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. This is the first direct statement about marriage in the Bible. It's simple. It's short. But man, this verse packs a wallop of a punch. The first blow would have come right at the conventions of the ancient world. Man should leave his father and mother. Hard stop. That didn't sound like much of a big deal now, but in the ancient world, that was a jarring thing to say. Extended families were a huge part of life in the ancient world. Uh, And of course, this text isn't saying you can't have grandparents involved in your life or cousins or aunts or uncles. It's not about that. It's not saying you can't, but it is making a statement that where once those relationships defined who you are, where once that's how you knew your place in the world and that's how you knew what your priorities were, now a new relationship defines who you are. No longer your father and your mother. You're now part of a, a, a family that's, that's more, defined, more defining for who you are than that old family was. And that brings us to the next phrase. Leave father and mother, that's phrase number one, but then also hold fast to his wife. Maybe, maybe you heard the old version, cleave. I like that better. Leave and cleave. Partly because I think those terms are meant to mirror one another. It's, it's, it's on purpose that they've been put right here together, one, two. 
Because, and this, this, is, where, this is where this passage swings hard at us and, and levels up with a, with a punch like that first phrase would have leveled folks in the ancient world. The leaving part we may be great with these days. But, but this is not a call to leave and then go west, young man, you know, and forge your own path and find yourself, figure out who you are, go and do it. No, this is, this is leaving for a specific purpose, for a specific person. The leaving is for the sake of a cleaving, for a, a new commitment, a new set of ties. And the final phrase rounds out this picture. It shows just how complete this holding fast really is. It's a self-giving so complete that it's like husband and wife become one flesh, one person. Their interests, their assets, their burdens, and their joys, they're now shared completely as if they're one. Behind this language is the, the practice of covenant keeping. A covenant is a promise that attaches one person to another, not offering some sort of payment or products, but offering a personal solidarity to live as if you really are the same person. It's to say to to the other, I want you more than I want freedom. I belong to you completely. That's what it is to cleave. It's not a contract. Today we're more used to contracts And we tend to approach marriage in the same way that we would approach any kind of business relationship. A contract isn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, it it helps to make expectations clear. It puts on paper what everybody's going to do. It helps define who's going to get what, who's going to give what. A contract protects people, protects organizations from getting ripped off. I mean, a contract is something you absolutely need. If you assume that two different parties are different from one another and don't actually have the same interests and need to make sure that at least for a moment, at least for this time, at least in this situation, their interests overlap just enough to bind them in these very specific ways. A contract is what you need if, as one person put it, marriage is not a fusion but an alliance. But biblical marriage calls not for a contract but a covenant. The purpose of a spouse, according to the Bible, is not to give you what that psychologist described as a companion for a separate but intertwining pathway of growth. No, the purpose of marriage is to give you a reflection of the love of a covenant-making, covenant-keeping, self-giving God, the same God that made you. Because the most amazing thing about Genesis 2.24 is not actually how countercultural it was then or now. The most amazing thing about Genesis 2.24 is what Paul does with it in Ephesians chapter 5. So just for a moment, keep your finger in Genesis 2. I want to invite you to flip over to Ephesians chapter 5. You really need to see what Paul does with this text in that, in that wonderful chapter. It's a chapter where he's laying out different ways that husbands and wives should love one another in their homes. He's calling on wives to trust the leadership of their husbands over their families, just like a church trusts the leadership of Christ. He's calling on husbands not to lord it over their wives, but to love them as Christ loved the church. In other words, to to put their interests first, to set aside your own interests, to do that even when it costs you something and feels like death. And then he builds through, through Ephesians 5, he builds to the most incredible statement about marriage that you will find anywhere in the Bible. Pick up with me. In verse 28, 
In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Now the quote, verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. I love that verse 32. And Paul knows how dense we can be, right? How tough we have, how tough it is for us sometimes to follow his train of thought, to get the point he wants us to get. So he just takes all the mystery out of it and says, look, when I quote Genesis 2.24, the reason I do that is that that verse was not really about Adam and Eve. And it hasn't been about any other human marriage directly ever since. That verse is ultimately about Jesus and his bride, his people, his church. Now what that means is, Thousands of years before Jesus ever showed up on earth. Thousands of years before he gave up his life to purify for himself a people. Thousands of years before he rose again from the grave and ascended to his father's right hand to pray for his people so they'd have everything they need until he comes back for them. Thousands of years before God's plan took place. God designed marriage to point ahead. And now, to point back. The purpose, the ultimate purpose for this relationship is not what a husband or a wife gets out of it. But the picture of God they give to others through it. What is marriage for? It's for God. It's a showcase for his love for us. It's a visual aid, like a moving picture that draws us into what his love is like. And it's meant to help us image him in the world through a love that doesn't come to take but to give. A love that asks not what can I get out of this situation, but what does my spouse need from me? Marriage is for reflecting God's love. And before we, before we move on to talk about sexuality, I want to tell you what this picture of marriage means for you if you're married this morning and if you're not married this morning. If you're married this morning, you are married to a finite sinner. I know you don't need me to tell you that. Your spouse has limits. Your spouse has flaws. And you are going to see those limits and see those flaws better than anybody else will. Because you, (laughs) you are going to be affected by those limits and by those flaws better than anyone else will. And if your marriage were first and foremost about you, then your spouse's flaws are only going to look and feel like barriers to you getting what you want or what you need. That's all they'll be. And that's going to make those flaws nearly impossible to put up with. But your marriage isn't first and foremost for you. That's not what it's for. 
You get a lot out of it. Praise God for the gift that it is. But that is not what it's for. Your marriage is first and foremost for God. It's meant to reflect something, the beauty of his love. And how did God respond to the limits and the flaws in his people? In Christ, God made our problems his problems. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, Paul says, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Christ made our problems his problems. And your marriage is meant to reflect that love. So what does that do to the limits and the flaws that you see in your spouse? It means they're not a barrier. They're not a hindrance to you getting what you want or need out of this relationship. Those limits and those flaws, those are your opportunity to do what you were meant to do in this marriage all along. You're seeing a prized opportunity to reflect something of the covenant-making, covenant-keeping, self-giving love of God. So go for it. And if you're not married this morning, two things I want to encourage you from with this text. The first is, don't be too picky. I mean, that's not what you're expecting me to say here. Let me, let me tell you why I think that's so important. As an application, directly from this text, I'll show you. Of course, marriage is a big deal, and you should never go into it lightly. That much should be super clear already from what I've said from Genesis 1 and 2. It is something you have absolutely got to take seriously and enter carefully. Because it's a covenant that will affect every part of your life. But I'm afraid that sometimes what looks like taking marriage seriously and being careful about it is really just consumerism, honestly. It's just, it's just a customer looking to make the most bang for their buck, looking to make sure they're not missing out on a better deal, looking to make sure they don't get stuck with a lemon. In other words, it comes sometimes that hesitancy, even though it looks like taking it seriously, it can come from an assumption that your marriage is really about you. And you want to make sure you get the best you can. That is very destructive. For one thing, you're going to go into marriage practicing the very instincts that will make your marriage miserable. You just cannot thrive if you approach one another like customers and products. But you're also going to, I mean, the bigger reason not to do it, not to think that way is that you're going to be overlooking people with whom you could build a wonderful and fulfilling and God-glorifying marriage. I don't want to take some of the pressure off of you guys to just lighten up and go for it. Nobody is perfectly compatible with anybody else, period. And the reason is, well, there's a lot of reasons, but, but one of them is that you're just going to be selfish until you die. So will your spouse. And selfishness keeps people from being compatible ever. You're going to have to die to yourself, and so will they. And that's true until the end. But it's also, you're also overthinking compatibility because, because the person you marry in year one is going to be different from the person you're married to in year 10 or 20 or 50. Who knows how they're going to change? Only God knows. He's the one who's at work in them. You can trust him with that work, but it will mean that you've got a different spouse 10 years later. And the key to God-honoring marriage is not compatibility on our definition of it. The key is commitment. To stay married to whoever your spouse is because they're yours. 
When you go into marriage as a Christian, your calling is to give yourself completely, to put your self-serving and self-obsession to death so that your spouse can flourish. And if that's what your marriage is about, imagine how ridiculous it is to be that picky. I mean, think about it. Before I nail myself to a cross, as Jesus did for me, I just need to make sure that our personalities are a good fit. Um, Before I take those nails, I I really need to make sure that you are as interested in outdoor activity as I am because my weekends are super important to me. Before I die to myself daily in this marriage, I mean, let's just say I could never give up my life for someone with brown hair. I mean... It's got to be, it's got to be red. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. The point of this relationship is to reflect the life-giving, life-sacrificing love of Jesus for us. You can do that with someone who shares your same maker and redeemer. The compatibility that matters is spiritual compatibility, not the kind of stuff you spend all your time stressing over. What matters is, do they own your Savior too? Do they live for his kingdom too? Do they want to leverage everything towards telling the truth about that kingdom and its gospel to anyone who will listen? Is that what they want? Is that what you want? If so, and they're amenable to it, go for it. (laughs) Go for it. Now, listen, the other thing I want to say, if you're not married, based on this text this morning, is, is meant to balance out what I've just said. Don't be afraid of missing out, if that's you this morning. I know some of you are single this morning, not because you don't want to be married, but, but you, long to be, you long to be married and haven't had the opportunity yet. And maybe what I've said already about marriage has been especially painful for you to hear. I mean, the, the more beautiful this picture emerges from the, the scriptures, the harder it is to live without it. The more you'll miss it. And you hear me talking about how much good work you can do through this partnership and, and see how powerfully the Lord uses it to shape us. And I know that just makes you long for it even more. And maybe you even feel hopeless this morning and waiting for it. And if that's what you're feeling, I want you to remember that marriage is ultimately supposed to be just a teaser for the intimacy and self-giving between Christ and the church. Ephesians 5, Paul tells you what you're missing out on. You're missing out on the trailer. You don't have to miss the movie. And ultimately, I I just don't know anyone who ever got to watch the movie and regretted that they didn't see the trailer first. It's hard to see there from here. But one day, you will see him as he is. You will then become like him, 1 John says. And you will be with him forever. And every joy that's ever been experienced in the happiest of marriages has only ever been the faintest echo of that song, the faintest taste of that banquet. You're going to get all of it. You can do without marriage now if that's the, the life the Lord gives you. Now, I mentioned before that I wanted intentionally to spend almost all of our time together this morning on what marriage is for. 
Because that's the balance of Genesis 1 and 2. Marriage is for God. It helps us to represent his rule in the world like he's made us to do. It helps us to reflect his love in the world like he's made us to do. But with the last few minutes that I've got this morning, I do want to talk to you about sexuality. How and why God created this particular gift to be used in his world. And I want to simply show you that sex is for marriage. Sex is for marriage. It's designed by God as a tool for the same work God designed marriage to do in his world in the, in the first place. It's tied directly to the point of marriage we've just spent all this time unpacking. Sex helps us represent God's rule, for example. I mean, forgive me for stating the obvious, but... Uh, this is where babies come from. <laughs> not a stork, not a cabbage. Uh, they come from a man and a woman becoming one flesh. Sex is meant to help us fulfill the command of Genesis 1.28, to be fruitful and multiply. Sex helps us represent God's rule in God's world. And sex also helps us reflect God's love to one another and to the world in a way. Because marriage is always about two people giving themselves completely to one another so that they're not two anymore, but one, just like Christ gave himself for his church to make her one with him. In the Bible, the way that sex is defined, and I'll send you to 1 Corinthians 6 to check me on this later this afternoon. Sex is defined specifically to fuse two people together, not just physically, but spiritually and emotionally. Sex always comes with strings attached. That's the whole point. And in a mysterious way that goes beyond words, sex is meant to change your life. It's designed to take this one flesh union that Genesis 1 talks about, and Genesis 2 rather, and take it off of the page and into your heart. It's how one spouse says to another, I am yours completely. And if that's what sex is for, if sex is a power tool designed for marriage, then this has two huge implications for our sex lives. Implication number one is, outside of marriage, you shouldn't have sex. Outside of marriage, you just shouldn't have sex. That's the bright line that the Bible draws around sexuality consistently from beginning to end. And not because the Bible's embarrassed, not because it's super shy, not because it's ashamed that this is the only way you can get babies, so we may as well go for it. Not, not at all. Because sex is so precious and is so powerful, the Bible gives us clear and life-giving boundaries to place around it to protect it for what it's intended to do in the first place. The Bible takes sex so seriously. That's why there's a command in the Ten Commandments about sexuality. That's why when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount unpacks what it looks like to live in his kingdom, he goes to sex. Not just what you do with your body, but even what you do with your mind. That's why when the New Testament warns of those things that will bring God's judgment, sexual sins make the list. And that's why when Paul, a single man who wasn't himself having sex, wrote letters to help churches understand how to follow Jesus in the wake of his death and resurrection, Paul spent significant time in these letters talking about sexuality and the purpose of the marriage that sex serves. Those boundaries have always made Christians weird. There's never been a time or a place where our view of sex fit well with everybody else's. And one of the most important ways it makes us different is that we just can't see sex as this casual thing. 
just another basic human appetite like food or sleep. A friend's episode once compared sex to racquetball. You know, it's a game you play with a friend in your spare time just to unwind a little bit. We know, God has told us, sex is far more than that. It always has been. It always will be. Sex sometimes comes with children. No one ever played racquetball after work one afternoon and ended up responsible for the life or livelihood of another human being that never asked for that. And sex always comes with strings attached. Always. If, if the only point of sexuality was, was the physical pleasure that comes from it, you could make a sort of case for getting plenty of practice before marriage, almost like you're doing your future spouse a favor. In that view of sex, it's just technique and performance. That's all there is to it. But the Bible will not let us think about it that way. You know, sex is always personal. It's always about communication between two people. When you have sex with no commitment, you're just enacting a lie. And it's just foolishness. Because whether you know it's happening or not, when you have sex outside of marriage, you are binding yourself in a way to that person. As much as you may say, I'm staying independent, you are saying with your body, I'm yours. To try to have sex without any kind of strings attached, it's like strapping on skis for better traction, climbing up a snow-covered hill. It's designed to do the opposite of what you're trying to do with it. And the Bible's boundaries around sex are not rooted, as I've said, in shame or repression. They're rooted in love and respect and in deep appreciation for what this practice is, for its power and its goodness and its beauty when used in the way that God designed it to be used. Somebody's compared sex to like a fire in a fireplace where it's, where it's meant to be. It gives warmth and comfort and light. In an attic, it's just more destructive than anything. Outside of marriage, you should not have sex. Inside of marriage, you should have sex. Inside of marriage, you should have sex. It is central to a healthy marriage. It's among the most precious and most life-giving gifts that God has given you if you're married. And it matters how you protect and cultivate this gift. One of the things I try to warn couples of in premarital counseling every time is that sex won't be as easy as you think it is. And that'll be different for different reasons at different times in your married life. Different reasons as a newlywed than as someone who's, who's just learning how to have the responsibility of kids in the home to, I'm assuming, being an empty nester and all the way to the end. At different times and in different ways, different spouses are going to have different expectations about what sex should be like and under what circumstances you should have sex and what you hope to get out of it. On all sorts of metrics, you won't always align. And especially if you assume that sex is going to be the easy part, then disappointment can creep in. And you can actually begin to, to dread it. And you can even stop having sex in your marriage because that seems easier than doing the work of communicating and moving toward one another and focusing on what you can give rather than what you're getting. But I want to, I want to make it clear to you, friends, from from the text that sex in your marriage will never be a neutral thing 
It's meant to be central to your life as a married couple. And it'll either be driving a wedge between you, making the oneness that is marriage's goal more difficult to experience, or it will be like a welder's torch fusing you together. It will do one or the other. It's never neutral. And this beautiful gift that God has given you is worth cultivating and protecting. There will be threats inside and outside your marriage to the goodness of this gift for your marriage. Cultivate and protect this gift that God has given you. Because when sex in your marriage is not about technique or performance, it's not about shopping in some sort of catalog, but it's about this person that God has given to you that you might give yourself to them. When that's what it is, you can grow old together enjoying that gift. It can stay yours even when your bodies change. Because the, the pleasure of sex in a godly and healthy marriage it's always tied to whose body it is. Not to what that body looks like at year one versus year 10 versus year 20 versus year 50, but to whose it is. And to what you get to say to one another through those bodies God has given you. You get to say, I am yours. I am yours alone. And that's a really, really powerful thing to be able to do it's worth it friends cultivate it and protect it I want to pray now that the Lord will help us to take this model he's given us for what our marriages are for for what sexuality is for and to embrace them and to honor him through them in the way that he's made us to do let's pray now Father we thank you so much again as we do each week for speaking to us so that we can know who you are, what you've done, and how we can honor you with the lives you've given to us. Apart from what you've said, we'd be lost. Thank you for this good word this morning. But we also know it is more than we can do to obey you and honor you. We know you've called us to give of ourselves, and we are so selfish so often. So we look to you in the power of your spirit a power that bears fruit in our lives, a power that sanctifies us because that's what Jesus, how he loves his bride. And looking to that power, we pray that you'd help us to become a community full of godly reflections of your love inside and outside our community, whether we're single or married. We pray that you would do this for us in Jesus' name, amen.